church. We're so looking forward to a great time of worship and opening God's word together as a family. We're going to do just that right now. We're going to sing as we have in weeks past. We're going to stand together if you would. We'll sing together Living Waters.
Let's bow in prayer before the Lord. Our God, our Creator, our Father, we have come to worship you today because you are worthy of our praise and all honor and glory. We, your people, know this to be true, and we delight when we are reminded of your character and respond with adoration and worship. But Father, we confess that we are so easily distracted from you, the true object of worship, to lesser persons and things. Our hearts are always active in evaluating the worth of what we hear and see, and sometimes our hearts are led away from you. And Lord, we confess that when we drift in any degree from you and toward what you have created, we make that person or thing an idol in our hearts. And, oh, Lord, our hearts are idol factories that manufacture little gods for our little purposes. But despite our tendency to drift, we are profoundly thankful that in your grace we are tethered to you. And your people will remain with you and return to you and do so as we do this Lord's Day. Glad and grateful that you have moved our hearts to worship you and to cause us to seek to please you with our lives and now with our praise. We ask you to aid us in our worship then. We can be distracted even while here. So help us to focus on you and on your character and on the purpose for which we sing and give and pray and preach to honor you. And with your aid, we ask you then to receive our worship, that it will be pleasing to you, for we offer it to you alone. And we ask these favors in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you, and please be seated. I'd like to welcome everyone this morning to Community Bible Church, especially to our guests. Thank you for coming and being with us. We'll be mentioning several ministries of our church this morning, and I want to let you know that you can learn more about any of these or submit a prayer request or inquire about anything by texting CBC Connect to 97000. That's CBC Connect to 97000. The latest episode of our weekly podcast, That's a Good Question, is now posted, as it is every Saturday at 2 p.m. This week's episode discusses the topic of church discipline and answers the question, must churches sometimes remove members? This week's Church Matters blog discusses the very important topic of forgiveness the article is entitled, To Forgive is Divine, Failure to Forgive is dot, dot, dot. I'll have to read it. Be sure to check it out if you haven't already this week. This week, there are a number of events coming up to which I would like to call your attention to. You can register for any of these or inquire about anything that I mentioned simply by texting CBC Connect to 97,000. Our community groups, our home groups, do meet the first and third Sundays of each month. Community groups do not meet 
tonight, and they will not meet for a little while because we have a couple of holidays coming up. Our next community group meeting will be on July the 18th. This Saturday is the graduation party for Audrey Bradley. The entire church family is invited. Audrey's party will be at the ministry center from noon to 3 p.m. Also this Saturday, all current sixth through eighth graders as of April 2021 are invited to the junior high end of the year party and farewell to the eighth graders. This event will be held behind the ministry center. Please note that the correct start time is 1 p.m. It was incorrectly listed at, as 2 p.m. in the Friday email. A little further out, this summer our 9th through 12th grade students will be traveling to Pentwater, Michigan for summer camp from July the 7th through the 10th. We believe camp is an important time for our students to build relationships and encourage one another to grow spiritually. We strongly encourage parents to send their senior high students to camp. Registration is open on our website at cbctrenton.com. You can register for any of these events or just learn more by texting CBC Connect to 97000. This is the time in our service, the part of our service, where we acknowledge that all we have belongs to the Lord. And we as who are members at CBC have purpose to set aside a portion of what the Lord has entrusted to us each week to devote to the Lord's work. Let me remind those of you who have joined together as a church family at CBC of the ways you can give to our ongoing mission. You can give online at cbctrenton.com by clicking the Give graphic near the bottom of the page and follow the instructions. In the Church Center app, simply click the Give button in the main menu at the bottom of the page. Or you can use the donation box in our lobby located next to the welcome desk just outside these doors to my right. Or there's another donation box outside of the church office entry doors just back over this way. We now come to the time for our scripture reading this morning. And our scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 3 verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now let's stand to sing my Savior's love just before the message from God's Word. Savior's love, and we've we learned it um, a while ago, but it was in the time where we still had a lot of people watching via live stream and some people in the auditorium. I just want to remind you guys of what it sounds like. I'm just going to sing through verse one of the chorus real quick, guys. Just the guitar. Just I know you're standing, so I'll just keep it quick. Um, but I just want to remind you so we can all worship the Lord together this morning. So I'm just going to do like verse one in the chorus. And you can kind of mumble along if you remember it a little bit, and then we'll, we'll jump back and do it all together. So it goes like this. What tongue could tell my Savior's love? What song of angels could describe? Could endless praises be enough to echo full his sacrifice? How worthy is the Lamb of God Beyond all might or skill of hand Still we confess and strain towards Such mystery and magnificence So that's verse 1. Chorus. My Savior's love My Savior's love what could compare, what tongue could tell my Savior's love? All right, so that's how it goes. Let's go ahead and sing that together this morning.
compare what I could tell my Savior's love. Amen. You may be seated. Well, at this time, our teens can be dismissed to their class. Those who are 6th grade through 12th grade, they're going to be having their class every Sunday through uh, June and July until in August we start up with our pre-pandemic schedule and we'll have our 9.30 worship service and then we'll have Sunday school after that. So any young people who fit into that category, your teachers are at the back to uh, take you back to your class. Any adults who try to escape, they, may, they will card you at the door as you try to, uh, as you try to do that. Please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 16, Proverbs chapter 16, and each week we provide an outline for the message. You should have received one as you came into the auditorium. And we are now in our series in the book of Proverbs in the second major division, which is from chapters 10 through 31, and those chapters contain the short, memorable wisdom sayings that we call Proverbs on various topics. We've seen what Proverbs says about things like the way we communicate, the way we practice discernment, the necessity of dealing with our sin struggles or they will deal with us. And two weeks ago, we saw what Proverbs says about anger. Now, I said two weeks ago because last week our service was devoted to the observance of the Lord's table. But two weeks ago, we looked at a passage on anger in chapter 29. And I think that led some of you to believe that we're at the end of the Proverbs series, since it has 31 chapters and we were in chapter 29, but now today we're in 16. And that's because this second major division of Proverbs is topical. So we're not going passage by passage in chapter order, but rather we're dealing with different topics wherever those may be found. So we still have a few weeks left in our Proverbs series. Very few of us remember our commencement. This is commencement season, so graduates, let me assure you that 30 years from now you won't remember it. I've graduated three times from high school, from college, seminary. I can't tell you who spoke at any of them, let alone what they said. Now many commencement speeches have to do with work and career, and understandably so, since the grads are going to embark on theirs very soon. But what is said, while often inspiring rhetoric, when it's compared to Scripture and sometimes when simply compared to real life, is just not true. The late Steve Jobs gave one such speech back in 2005. Many of you know that Jobs is the co-founder and former CEO of Apple Computers. Now, I have to be careful in this crowd criticizing Steve Jobs since we have a few, shall I say, devoted followers of all things Mac. Now, I've had a, a Mac for several years now, and I'm very pleased, but I'm, I'm not part of the cult like some others are. Others who shall remain nameless, but whose initials are Dr. Combs and Pastor Larry. <laughs> anyway, in, in 05, Steve Jobs gave the commencement address at Stanford University. He observed that he needed to be brief in his comments, and in his short speech, he recounted a few important episodes in his life, 
and how it had generally been a confluence of fortunate circumstances. One story was about how he was actually fired from the very company that he had created. He said this, I was lucky. I found what I loved to do early in life. Woz and I, as in Steve Wozniak, his co-founder, started Apple in my parents' garage when I was 20. We worked hard, and in 10 years, Apple had grown from just two of us in a garage into a $2 billion company with over 4,000 employees. We just released our finest creation, the Macintosh, a year earlier, and I'd just turned 30, and then I got fired. How can you get fired from a company you started? Well, as Apple grew, we hired someone who I thought was very talented to run the company with me, and for the first year or so, things went well. But then our visions of the future began to diverge, and eventually we had a falling out. When we did, our board of directors sided with him. And so at 30, I was out, and very publicly out. What had been the focus of my entire adult, adult life was gone, and it was devastating. I really didn't know what to do for a few months. But something slowly began to dawn on me. I still loved what I did. The turn of events at Apple had not changed that one bit. I'd been rejected, but I was still in love. And so I, just started, I decided to start over. He then tells how he came back to Apple, and he ended up being the CEO to his dying day. And here's his advice to the Stanford graduates. Sometimes life's going to hit you in the head with a brick. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love, and that is as true for work as it is for lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work, and the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on, so keep looking. The Hall of Fame broadcaster, the late Paul Harvey, apparently had Steve Jobs' philosophy too. He said, take your hobby, make it your job, and you'll never work a day again in your life. It's sometimes stated this way, do what you love, and you'll never work another day in your life. But unfortunately, many, in fact, the vast majority of the world, including Americans, are still looking. A survey a few years ago found that Americans hate their jobs more than ever before, with fewer than half saying that they're satisfied. This echoes another survey from earlier in the same year that found that more than four out of five U.S. workers do not have their dream job. And this applies, I might add, even if your work does not include a paycheck, as is the case with one who does the hard and important labor of housework. And so today we're going to look at what the Bible says about our work. Let's bow and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you again for gathering us now. We thank you for quieting us now. Quiet our hearts, focus our minds so that we can focus on your instructions with regard to how we spend our time in the labor that you've assigned to us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, of course, it's true that some people have their dream job, like Steve Jobs and Paul Harvey apparently did. But that's the extreme minority. 
Most people don't love their work. And so I ask in your outline, why do we hate work? Here's some good advice, whether at commencement or at any other time. Verse 1 of Proverbs 16. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Now, I'm going to wait till the end of the message to explain what those mean. But you can see that they give a hopeful note to what we do if we do it for the right reasons. And that has to be said because we very often don't pursue and perform our work for the right reasons. And that's because, in general, we don't like it going all the way back to the very beginning of human history, which made work difficult due to sin. Work is difficult due to sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, who perfectly represented us at the beginning, brought a profound and negative change to the way we pursue our work. But God had originally made humanity to work as part of his plan for us before the entrance of sin into his world. The Bible says this, before the first uh, couple had sinned, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, some have thought that work itself is due to the curse because of sin, but in fact, God designed for humanity to work before we ever sinned. But sin did indeed bring about a profound shift in our relationship to work. After Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them and explained the negative consequences that would result. To Adam, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. The physical environment in which we work is now a challenge as it produces many challenges for us. The effects of sin on the earth include drought and flooding and pests and fires and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and on it goes, none of which would have occurred apart for the, for the entrance of sin and none of which, by the way, will occur when we live in God's restored kingdom and then the new heaven and the, new, and the new earth. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 8 says this, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay because we know that the whole creation has been groaning right up to the present time. So friends, it's not work that is the curse. It's the difficulty of our work that is the curse. The physical effects of sin make work more difficult. But even if you don't work in the elements, perhaps you work in an office environment, or you do work outside, but the elements have been tamed by machinery to make it easier than it used to be, nevertheless, still, aspects of your work are difficult due to sin, if for no other reason. You have to deal with sinners like you and me. So work is difficult due to sin. And work is 
distasteful due to our sin. That is, in general, for all people, we live in a world affected by the curse, and that means work will be harder than it otherwise would be. But we specifically, each of us, usually find work distasteful because of our personal sin. You see, by nature, and our nature, all of us, is a sin nature. Never forget that. So that by nature, we are no longer motivated to work for the pleasure of God as we were created to, but now work is seen as a necessary evil. Work really just gets in the way of what I really want to do. I need it to do what I want, but it's an obstacle to doing what I want as much as I'd like. And that's why you have passages such as the one Dr. Combs read earlier. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor. Very often, we're not motivated to work for the right reason, for the glory of the Lord. Or sometimes we're not motivated to work at all. And that's why the Bible addresses the problem of laziness in several places. Proverbs 19, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. Or in chapter 26, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. That's the nature of the lazy person who then makes extreme excuses for this lack of motivation. Proverbs says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming in the streets. Do we have that one? There's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming in the streets. In other words, it's too dangerous for me to, to go out there and actually engage in meaningful work. It says elsewhere, the sluggard does not plow in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. Now, the season for planting was the rainy seasons. It was cold, it was wet, it was unpleasant. And so he finds a reason not to endure that. Sometimes laziness is justified for spiritual reasons. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible say that people are already too greedy? With passages like this, I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. We see our neighbor and we want what he or she has. We want their possessions, we want their position, we want their power. In Old Testament times, if the neighbor has a new chariot, we need a new chariot. In Solomon's day, they would call that keeping up with the Steinbergs. One response is the one then given by a fool, as seen in the next verse in Ecclesiastes. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. They say, hey, what's it all worth anyway? I'm not going to be envious. I'm just going to be idle. I'll do nothing and let someone else meet my needs. I'll presume upon the compassion of others. And this is not uncommon, and that's why it appears so many places in Scripture. So if your incentive structure for work depends on the goodness of people's hearts, think again. We would all like to think better of our fellow man, but the Bible tells us the truth about ourselves and others. Now, if you learned a good work ethic, then thank the Lord for that because it does not come naturally. 
and many have not learned it, and we make a mistake to disincentivize work. If you give people as much money to stay home as to work, guess what most, what most people will do? I know politicians feel the need to say that everybody wants to work as long as they have a job available, but you can consult three sources to disprove that. One, talk to a small business owner about how hard it is to find good help even before the pandemic and the generous unemployment benefits. With regard to that, just a couple of days ago, in the news, there was General Motors had available like 250 jobs and 60 people applied for those, 60. A union leader said one of the things we need to do to attract more workers is to stop testing people for pot. I'm not making that up. So one way you disprove this idea that everybody who can work, would work, if they simply had a job available, is talk to business owners. Secondly, look at all the help wanted signs all over. And thirdly, most important, look at God's word and what it says about human nature. Now what do we do? with a loved one in this situation who refuses to engage in stable work. If we're to be stewards of what God has entrusted to us, hear this, friends, we are not to be enablers. The Bible says this, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And it's in that very context that it goes further to say this, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed, but do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And if you enable that, you are misusing the resources Goodness that God Attend. So why do we need our work is one question. Then another in your outline is this. What why do we need our Almighty can do if with his We've got a battle with work in general for the reasons that we've seen. But suppose we get past that and we do in fact decide to work. Then why are so many so discontented in their particular jobs? Now here are a few reasons. <laughs> give you three reasons for why we're discontented and then I'll give you some more reasons on the next outline point. Joyful, these are not in the That who we are is found in what we do. And yet here we are in our job and it's not doing the trick. And so I need another job or another career in order to be fulfilled. Not looking to it for fulfillment means I don't have to agonize over school or career. Simply do what I need to do to make a living. But many people have bought the lie that what I do is who I am. It gives me my identity. It gives me my fulfillment. But if you don't worry about that, then graduates, <laughs> you'll make life much easier on yourself. Now, you parents may get upset with me because what I'm going to say may not comport with what you've been telling them. 
But here's, here's, the, here's the fact. A young person at 18 years old does not have their life mapped out. In fact, statistics say that for those who go to college, 75% will change their major at least once. And 50% will change it twice. And yet one of the things we do is put pressure on an 18-year-old to tell us what your plan is. So we'll go to the upcoming open houses and we'll say, so what are you going to do in the fall? And some young people know, and they do exactly what they had intended to do. But many do not. And some feel the pressure, frankly, to just make something up. This is what I'm going to do in the fall. I talked to one of our young people the other day, and they simply said, I don't know. And I said, you know, that's a perfectly acceptable answer. You don't have to have your life mapped out right now. You don't look to your job to fulfill you. Many of you know that I spent 20 years in the computer field before becoming a pastor. Well, why did I get a computer degree? Because I love computers? Nah. I hate computers. I got a degree in computers because they were hiring computer people. Period. It was back in the day when you didn't have online and if you wanted to look for a job, you waited for the Sunday paper. Anybody remember that? And the Sunday paper was about four inches thick. And all the help wanted ads, and this is in the early 80s, when you couldn't get a factory job, you couldn't get any of that. This was in the early days of after Carter and early Reagan. The economy was lousy. And every help wanted ad was either an engineer or a computer person. So I got the hint. And I did that. Now, I have a theory that midlife crisis has its roots in your 20s. Because it's then that you begin planning your future, consciously or unconsciously, and then when you get to be 35 and you get to be 40, you realize, I'm on the halfway point, and it's not going in the direction that I thought. So I encourage our young people, don't expect your job to fulfill you. Another reason we hate our jobs is it gets in the way of what we believe is really important. We don't see it as a gift from God to be used for God, and so it's an annoyance, a hindrance to what we really want to do. You endure it rather than serve the Lord in it. So you put just enough into it to get the money to do what you want, not bring glory to God in the quality with which you do it, in the attitude with which you do it. It's simply five days until you can get to the two days of the week to do what you really want. And you don't even really get the two days because the pastor's on your case to attend church faithfully. But everybody's either singing or thinking, everybody's working for the weekend. You see it as merely a living rather than a calling. And it's as we'll see, what you do is not who you are, but it is a calling. And that's why we refer to jobs as vocations. Vocation comes from the Latin vox, which means voice or calling. God has called you, hear this now, to serve him where you are, even if it's not all you might have wanted, so it's not something in the way or that you just have to endure. We hate our jobs because we expect those jobs to fulfill us, and it disappoints. We see it as being in the way of what we really want. And here's a third reason. 
we fail to see the larger picture. The ability to see things in context is one of the great gifts God gives to the Christian. We have the widest possible context in which to see things. But when we lose sight of that larger picture, we become focused on the very small picture that is our circumstance. Friends, sin causes us to reduce the size of our purpose to the size of our circumstance. But those hard things are all but a step that for the Christian always, always leads to bigger and better things. How did, how did Jesus view his calling to die on the cross? We know he prayed to have the cup of suffering removed from him. If he looks at it only as the event, only the cross in isolation, he doesn't do it. But he sees the larger picture. So the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy, not the joy in the suffering, but the joy set before him because of the suffering. And so the mom who is up in the middle of the night nursing her fussy baby when she's worn out from the day and can barely keep her head up, but she does it because it's part of something larger. The guy who goes to work and has to deal with unreasonable demands and answer to a boss who's unlikable, he does it for what it accomplishes in his growth personally, but in his family's well-being and the witness for Christ that it allows. This principle applies to all of life, not just work. The child of God dealing with pain and chronic sickness looks beyond the thing itself to the larger purpose, knowing and thanking God that there always, always is one. And so the Bible says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for because our light and momentary troubles are achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We've looked at why we hate work and why some of the reasons we hate our, our own jobs. But we have another question. Why do we love our jobs? As I've talked about hating work and hating our jobs, some of you are thinking, what's he talking about? I love my job. I'm going to give some reasons why that's the case for many people. Now, of course, I'm not able to discuss all the reasons people love their jobs, and some of you may have different and good reasons for doing so, but here are some common and inadequate reasons. The first is this. It gives us our identity. We've got to remember, as I've said, you are not what you do. You may well find a sense of satisfaction in a job well done, in making something that reflects skill and craftsmanship, or if you're in one of the helping professions in providing service, relief, comfort, improvement to others, that's all good. But it's not who you are, it's what you do. And if you lose your identity in what you do, hear this now, what happens when you're no longer able to do it? Think about the athlete who can't walk away from the game. 
the cop or the manager or the teacher or assembly line worker or whoever who loses his or her job to cutbacks or lack of funding or a merger. Or the retiree who doesn't know who she is once she's no longer doing her job. Or the parent whose identity has become so absorbed in the children that when they're gone, you feel that life is gone as well. If your identity and your contentment are circumstantial, you are set up for a fall because literally every circumstance can change. Now the answer is not then in focusing on you instead of others. Some people would respond to that saying, you're right, I need some me time. I need to focus on me more. Now the answer is not in focusing on you instead of others or not giving your best at work, but rather it's in focusing on what lasts over what changes. You see, if Jesus is the center of your endeavors, including your work, then what's most important will never change even if your situation does. You may remember when Jesus visited the home of his friends Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And when he did that, Luke chapter 10 shows us a, a stark contrast between the two sisters as Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparation she believed had to be made. So she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. All right. You know you've gone wrong when you're coming and telling Jesus what to do. Tell her to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And you've heard me say before, when Jesus says your name twice, you're in big trouble. Okay. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better. Some of us love our jobs because it gives us our identity or because it provides an escape. Workaholics are often hiding from something. Taking the overtime is often about more than the extra money. Sometimes it's because I'd rather be at work than at home having to deal with her or him or with the kids or both. Meanwhile, she's badgering you about working so much, which only makes you want to work more. And escapes come in many varieties for men and women, from the man cave to the golf course to the bar on the corner or the one you maintain at home to the factory or office or friends, or parents, or mental fantasies, an endless list of possibilities. And yet, friends, God has called all of us to multiple roles as children, spouses, parents, employees, church members, citizens. If you find you're immersing yourself in some to the exclusion of others, beware of the escapism that could be controlling your purposes, your choices. We love our jobs because we mistakenly try to find our identity in it, or it provides an escape, or we're just too easily satisfied. That failure to connect to a larger purpose that I mentioned earlier means we're satisfied with something less 
than the transcendent purpose for which God made us. If you can find your fulfillment in making things that don't last, widgets or cars or pastries or bunker shots and putts on the golf course, then you're too easily satisfied. If you're in the people business, some area of the helping professions that I mentioned earlier as a counselor, a social worker, a nurse, or a stay-at-home mom, but you're content with providing temporal rather than eternal help in the gospel, you're too easily satisfied. You were made for more. John Scully had been a successful executive for Pepsi when Steve Jobs lured him away to work for Apple. Scully told one interviewer that one of the many things that impressed him about Jobs was that Jobs never talked about money. Instead, he saw what Apple was doing as a, quote, noble cause. He talked about building tools to help people unleash their best ideas, creativity, and performance. For him, money wasn't the noble cause. He wanted to change the world. But Scully came close to declining the offer to work at Apple until one day, as Jobs was making his final pitch, he turned to the president of PepsiCo and he said this, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or come with me and change the world? Scully said the question landed like a punch to the gut and he took the job. Now that's a story that's been told over and over because it's so inspirational, but I would suggest to you, friends, it still represents settling for too little. Believe it or not, changing this world ain't enough. Because this world is not going to last. Change the world for how long? Compare that to the gospel, which changes not just the world, but changes people and does so forever. Steve Jobs ended that commencement speech by talking about his bout with pancreatic cancer. And the fact that it was, uh, his was a, a rare form that was curable, though he did succumb to it six years later. But he drew lessons from that brush with death. He says this, having lived through it, I can now say this to you with a bit more certainty than when death was a useful but purely intellectual concept. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it, and that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you, but someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. So follow your inner voice, heart, and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. And he ends his speech with these words, stay hungry, stay foolish. Now, he got it right when he said we all have a date with death, unless the Lord returns first. But notice what's missing. Any assurance of what happens after death, nor is there any mention of what causes death. Earlier, I read portions about his experience in being fired and then rehired at Apple, but I left out one phrase. I read this earlier. Sometimes he said, life's going to hit you in the head with a brick. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. But here's the full quote. Sometimes life is going to hit you in the head with a brick 
Don't lose faith. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. Don't lose faith. Faith in what, Steve? No better, faith in whom? Proverbs 16, verse 1. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and He will establish your plans. Verse 1 pertains to human initiative in thought and God's initiative in human speech. And when verse 1 refers to the plans, it's a Hebrew word for arranging. These are thought-through plans. But it's saying whether those plans are going to amount to good depends on the Lord. We sinful humans don't make good plans apart from the Lord and knowledge of His plans. So we can carefully think about what we're going to do, but whether that comes from our heart into words and actions as good, that is proper, it says in verse 1, that's in the Lord's hands. But we always think our plans are good. Otherwise... We wouldn't make them. And so verse 2 says, All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Since we justify all of our ways and all of our decisions, and the Lord evaluates according to truth, then a conflict of assessment will arise. Motives in verse 2 is plural because we can have more than one. We can have complex motives. But whether what we do is good depends on what the Lord says in His revealed standards in His Word. And since only the Lord produces good in our words and actions, and He alone can give an accurate assessment of the motives behind them, we should commit all our plans to the Lord who can, verse 3 says, establish them. Unbelievers often seem so confident but paradoxically, they're often plagued with fear. Godly people who know God's sovereignty and know their own limitations live in peace. Plans and deeds that are performed with a total commitment to the Lord will be, verse 3 says, established. What you devise in your heart and mind, make a lasting contribution to what the Lord is doing in His world. Hear this, as enduring as the elements of the world the Lord created. And I say that for this reason. The Hebrew word for establish in verse 3 is used in chapter 8. It says this, The Lord established, same word, the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. So we work. Whatever our particular vocation, our calling, we work for God. We prioritize God. We subsume everything to His plan, the mission He has given His people through His church. Instead of living for the weekend with the moniker TGIF, thank God it's Friday, we live every moment of our work week before and for the Lord, contributing to the gospel mission, and we say in the title of today's message at the top of your outline, TGIS, thank God it's Sunday. Now, friends, that's a profoundly different way 
to look at your work. But it's how God has designed it for us. But only those who know and love Jesus will prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer in just a moment. Those of you who know Jesus, ask him to give you this God-revealed perspective from his word. And those of you who come into this room and don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, we give you opportunity to do that. You need to, as we all do, realize that you are a sinner. That shows up in a lot of ways, including the way we view our work and the way we use our time and our talent and our treasure. Realize that you are a sinner. Recognize, though, that Christ died to pay the penalty for all of your sin. Repent. Lord, I'm going to go a different way. And going a different way includes a different kind of thinking like we've seen today. And receive Jesus into your life. When we pray from your heart to God in your own words, acknowledge your sin, that he's the only way that it can be forgiven. Ask him for that forgiveness. Give him your life and commit yourself to following him. Here's your take-home truth. You hate your job because you want too much from it. You love your job because you want too little from it. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you again for this time as your people to stand to be before you with your word open and to be instructed on this matter of what you say about our work, our vocation, our callings. Help us, Lord, to be people who have a profoundly different perspective than that of the world. That is what you have called us to. Help us to put it into practice so that we're able to bring glory to you in all we do, not just on Sunday, but every day. Lord, I pray that in this sacred moment, you would draw some out of the world into yourself, into a relationship with Jesus Christ, giving them your Holy Spirit so that they are moved by your truth, desire to align their lives with your standards and make the changes as we've talked about today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Thank you, CBC family and guests, for being with us. Have a great week serving.